Hello and welcome to the podcast for the March 2009 issue of the Lancet Oncology. Richard Lane here and I'm joined by TLO's Deputy Editor Emma Granger. Emma, welcome. We're going to focus on three research articles in the March issue. Let's start off with one looking at myelodysplastic syndromes. First of all, Emma, some definitions here, please. What are these syndromes? Hello, Richard. Myelodysplastic syndromes are a heterogeneous group of diseases and they're generally characterised by ineffective haemopoiosis and this can lead to peripheral blood cytopenias and in some cases it can actually progress to myeloid malignancies such as AML, which is acute myeloid leukaemia. And what are the therapeutic options for treating these myelodysplastic syndromes? Well, unfortunately, the treatments are very limited in this setting. Only allogeneic stem cell transplantation has shown any benefit at improving survival or reducing leukaemic transformation. And this is only suitable for a few patients. Those patients that are classified by the International Prognostic Scoring System as a so-called intermediate 2 risk have a relatively short median survival of only around one year. And those that are scored as high-risk cases, this is even worse, at less than six months. And these groups of patients are those that are at a particularly high risk of the progression to AML that I mentioned earlier. So clearly a poor prognosis for people at medium or high risk. This study assesses the drug azacitidine. I hope I pronounced that correctly, Emma. What do we know about the pronunciation of the drug and more importantly about its mode of action? Yes, I think you've pronounced that correctly. The drug is a DNA methyltransferase inhibitor. Um, now, aberrant DNA hypermethylation has been linked to the progression of these myelodysplastic syndromes. So the rationale for the use of this drug is that it's thought to act by undoing this hypermethylation and restoring normal transcription of tumour suppressor genes. But there are also likely to be other mechanisms of action for the drug, such as apoptosis, programmed cell death. And you asked what we know about the drug in the clinical setting. Well, it's been previously tested in a trial that was conducted by the Cancer Leukaemia Group B investigators. In this study, they only compared against a control arm that was best supportive care, and they also included a heterogeneous mix of patients. The study also allowed a crossover design, where around half of the patients actually crossed over to the active treatment. So although this trial did show improved survival for the new drug, this was obviously compared to an arm where there was no active treatment, and that's where the trial in this issue comes in. The trial by Pierre Fenno and colleagues is a phase 3 international multi-centre open-label trial. In the group that I mentioned earlier, those that are with the high-risk um, myelodysplastic syndromes. And patients were assigned to either azacytidine therapy or one of three controlled treatments. In this case, best supportive care, low-dose cytorabine or intensive chemotherapy. Now, the reason they didn't just use one control arm is that all three of these are considered as current conventional care according to differing regional and consensus guidelines. But this control treatment allocation was decided by the investigator prior to randomisation. So, for example, the younger patients tended to be allocated to the intensive chemotherapy and then randomised between the two arms. And Emma, how did azacitidine compare with other arms of the trial that you've just outlined? Well, actually, it was very promising results. Um, 358 patients were randomly assigned, and after a median follow-up of 21 months, the median overall survival in the experimental arm, that's the azacitidine arm, was 24.5 months, and this compared to 15 months for the combined control group with the three controls combined. But when the results were split according to the control arm, they were also promising, and all of the comparisons showed a difference between the arms of nine months in favour of the azacitidine. 
I have to point out that in the intensive chemotherapy arm, this was not significant, although it was in the other two groups. But this was possibly due to the very small numbers in this group. The drug also showed promising results for time to AML transformation, a median of 17.8 months for acecytidine compared to 11.5 months for the control group. And the most common toxic events were grade 3 to 4 peripheral blood cytopenias, and neutropenia in particular was higher in the acetylcysteine arm compared with controls. But I have to say that this was mainly due to the difference of the experimental drug versus the best supportive care control group. Where does this leave us? How should these results be interpreted in terms of their effect on clinical practice? Well, I have to say, I think this is a very important trial, and it was described most unusually for oncologists as a breakthrough by the link commentator Dr. Garcia Manero from the MD Anderson Cancer Centre in the States. It does suggest that azacytidine should certainly be considered for this patient group, this high-risk group, when a stem cell transplant is not possible. The separation of the curves at around three months supports the strength of the finding. And it's also worth pointing out to listeners that there were some interesting observations in the subgroup analyses, which obviously weren't powered. Patients with chromosome 7 alterations, who are generally thought to do poorly, they seem to particularly benefit from the azacytidine. A median survival was 13.1 months compared to 4.6 months in the controls. And the authors of the article say that on the basis of these findings, azacytidine is now being tested in those with an unfavourable karyotype before transplantation. So the findings need to be confirmed, but as also mentioned by the link commentator, the challenge now is to help develop treatments that will work in those that don't do so well with this new drug, or those that lose their response and become resistant. So although this trial is a significant advance, most patients will still die of their disease, so more needs to be done to help improve further the prognosis of these patients. The study is simply a step, I think, albeit quite a large one at the beginning of a long journey. Let's move on and discuss another research article, and this is looking at prostate cancer and specifically um, how circulating tumour cells, or CTCs, could be some sort of diagnostic marker. Could you just explain the concept here? What do we mean by circulating tumour cells? What's the idea? Now we're moving on to a very interesting study that looks at the use of these circulating tumour cells. The idea is that if you have more of these cells, you might have a poorer prognosis. They look in this study to see if they can help predict the patient's prognosis after chemotherapy. And this is in a patient group that have metastatic castration-resistant prostate cancer. And the real difficulty here is that these patients have a very wide range of survival rates that can vary from a few weeks to several years. So any sort of factor that can help identify those that do poorly or those that do better is is obviously important. Prostate-specific antigen, PSA, has traditionally been used at various stages of the treatment pathway in prostate cancer, but is a notoriously bad marker at these later stages and is often used just because there's no suitable alternative. It has been proposed that CTCs might be a more accurate prognostic marker in this setting, not just in prostate cancer actually, but in breast and colorectal cancer as well. And as remarked upon by the link commentator Dr Paul Verhagen from the Erasmus Centre in Rotterdam, CTCs also have an advantage of being measured in the blood, so they don't need tissue samples, which at later stages of disease are not always available or not always suitable for patients undergone several treatments since they were taken. So the main aim of this study by Professor Howard Scher and colleagues is to see whether these CTCs were a suitable predictor of survival and could act as an intermediate surrogate marker. So building on their previous work, the advantages of the study that they report here is that they use a longer follow-up, a more homogeneous group of 164 patients who are receiving only first-line chemotherapy. And they also assess CTCs as a continuous variable. And what were the main outcomes of this study, Emma? 
Were they measured by CTCs and PSA levels and several other factors before and after treatment in the patient group that I mentioned earlier? And these were patients on the IMMC38 trial. They looked at baseline 4 weeks, 8 weeks and 12 weeks after treatment and they found that a change in the number of CTCs was strongly associated or moderately associated with the risk of death and that PSA was only weakly associated. And how do you think these results will guide future clinical research? That's the point, isn't it? It's about it, the implications here are for future research, not directly for clinical practice. Yes, the FDA has approved um, CTC counts for monitoring of patients with breast, colorectal and prostate cancer, but their previous approval was based on just using a specific cut-off. And the findings that Professor Scher reports here show that it's also prognostic for survival when CTCs are used as a continuous variable, and they suggest that it could be used as a surrogate intermediate endpoint. And this has important clinical implications because it could potentially reduce the time needed in trials for drug approval. And the authors suggest that this factor should now be monitored prospectively within the design of future randomised clinical trials. And finally, let's discuss the research article, this time looking at esophageal cancer. Just kick off with some background here, Emma. How common is esophageal cancer worldwide and how is it normally treated? Well, esophageal cancer is the sixth most common cause of cancer mortality. And a five-year survival worldwide is only 10%. And in Kenya, which was the setting for the study in this issue, esophageal cancer is actually the most common cancer and represents 35% of all tumours. And unfortunately, in this setting, over 90% of patients present with inoperable disease. So although surgery is normally the main treatment, not all tumours are receptible, particularly in these resource-limited settings, where patients tend to present late with more advanced disease. So this raises a number of issues of how to treat these patients. And treatment is normally palliative in nature. It's used to relieve symptoms such as dysphagia, which is the difficulty in swallowing. But in settings with sufficient resources, chemotherapy and radiotherapy can be given. But of course, these aren't options in the more restricted resource settings. And this study, as you say, in Kenya, in a Kenyan setting, looks at the use of stents in, in the sort of palliative context here. How does it work? Because whenever I think of stents, I think of coronary stents. Well, I think the concept's quite similar to the cardiac stents. As I mentioned previously, dysphagia is a very common symptom in patients with inoperable esophageal cancer. And if they're given radiotherapy and chemotherapy, this can, of course, relieve this to some extent by reducing the tumour size. In the resource-limited settings, these therapies are, are often unavailable, as was the case in the article that we reported the issue. So that's where the metal self-expanding stents come in and they can be used to keep the airway open and, and thereby they relieve symptoms such as dysphagia. So they don't have anti-tumour properties per se but they can help in allowing the patient to feed, to take insufficient nutrition and also prevent them from becoming dehydrated. And just briefly Emma, the methodology here, numbers of patients, how was the, the study done? Dr Russell White and colleagues assessed the use of these metal self-expanding stents as a sole therapy in 951 patients and they measured the mean dysphagia scores both before and after placement to see how effective they were. The key findings were that the stents reduced the mean dysphagia score and this is based on the Ogilvy scoring scale and they were reduced from 3.3 at baseline before stent placement where 3 is able to swallow liquids only to 1 for patients still alive and 1 represents able to swallow some solids. And even at death, the mean score was 1.8, and this was reported often by the family, where two is able to swallow semi-solids only. 
The median survival was 250 days and this compared quite favourably with other series that had used chemotherapy or radiotherapy for palliation. And it's thought that maybe the previous studies that had looked at stenting as a sole therapy that had reported poor survival, that perhaps they were probably biased by the fact that these tend to be used in those that are expected to do poorly rather than all of those that were actually eligible, as in this study, because obviously there was no alternative treatment. Thanks, Emma. And what happens next? The article, the authors do mention the need for some confirmation of the findings because some data was lost to follow-up. Is that right? Yes, as might be expected in this sort of setting, the study did have an awful lot of patients lost to follow-up, in this case around two-thirds, so we'll need some replication. I hope it should be possible to transfer these promising results to other settings. And the link commentator Dr Mark de Groot from the Grootshire Hospital in Cape Town, South Africa, puts the whole study nicely into clinical context, and he also talks about how generalisable these findings could be. Um, he does point out that stents in this study were provided free of charge or to reduce cost by the manufacturers. And this, of course, could be a barrier to any replication in other resource-poor settings. And adequate training could be another barrier. He also equates that the challenges that these authors faced and others in similar areas could be thought of as launching a hook cuisine restaurant in London where you only have chicken to serve and a one-plate stove. But nevertheless, the authors say in their discussion that two additional hospitals in Kenya are now testing the use of these stents for inoperable esophageal cancer so it looks like it might be transferable to other settings. And just before we go, any other little highlights that you'd like to mention? We have several pieces in this month's issue that highlight how the global recession is affecting cancer care in Europe and the US. And we also have the Lancet Oncology's most read articles in 2008. So please have a look and see if your paper is there. Many thanks, Emma. Those were the highlights, the three research articles we've highlighted in this month's podcast. That's for the March 2009 issue of The Lancet Oncology. Many thanks to Emma and to you all for listening, and we'll be back next month.